0: You're listening to Irish Radio Canada's Home and Abroad, and a recent uh, documentary that was issued by Netflix has been getting quite a lot of attention, and it relates to an incident that happened on the 31st of July 1975, just north of the border in the north of Ireland, when the Miami show band, who were at probably... Um, one of th- well they were one of the best known and most popular bands in Ireland at the time and they were playing north south of the border all over the place and uh, on the 31st of July they were playing a gig in the north of Ireland and on the way home they were stopped by the UVF and left for dead and uh, Stephen Travers was one of the band members left for dead and survived and Stephen is here to talk to me about uh, remastered the Miami Massacre Stephen thanks a million for coming along
1: Good to talk to you Austin And uh,
0: 1975 as I said The um, band scene was strong in Ireland at that time Bands were going up and down the country And despite the fact that the Troubles were very much um, potent I suppose at the time a of, some bands would cross the border and some would not but the Miami, Miami were quite comfortable and were drawing mixed crowds so there was you guys had no reason to believe you had anything to worry about going up and doing a gig
1: No I'd say that uh, near enough every band would, no I, I didn't know I wasn't aware of any band that wouldn't uh, play the North because uh, we were based in Dublin <coughs> although I'm originally from South Tipperary in uh, and Shore but when I joined the Miami, uh, just two months before that, um, we went. To, we had to go and base ourselves in Dublin. Anne and I, uh, Anne and I had just been married a year before. <clears throat> she was quite a successful uh, model for photographic model for uh, things like uh, Wella hair projects, products, and things like that. So we were both very much uh, sort of a, a, moder- a young modern couple, and. Um, we're living in Dublin, the band was based in Dublin and I'd say we did if we were playing six nights a week at least two of those would be in the north mm. so that, and there was no such thing as uh, uh, you know sectarianism in the band um, we were a mixed band, Catholics and Protestants from north and south
0: and to that extent when you say you were a mixed band as I, having watched the documentary I know it wasn't even a question that arose you were just musicians
1: that's right, the important thing was how well somebody could play and you um, I don't know if perhaps some of your listeners may remember a band called the Freshmen uh, we were a fine band from the north I remember the, uh, the one of the one of the lads, one of the main men in the Freshmen, Billy Brown said one time he was asked what what, what does it take to get a job in one of the handful of top show bands in Ireland?" and he said it's quite simple he said you only have to be able to do one thing and that is to be able to play everything so you had to be uh very very versatile and i know a lot of the show bands would have gone out and played in 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 um in canada uh, i think there was a place called the maple leaf in toronto it was quite a famous venue uh and uh so very popular great uh, great source of enjoyment and fun and uh very very popular type of entertainment obviously you didn't have as many distractions at that time you didn't have you know the internet or uh, even discos hadn't really come into force uh but yeah the miami showman was at the top of his game
0: so on the way back that night when you guys were stopped um i'm sure naturally there's the initial fear and trepidation of like okay there's a problem up here let's go with the flow um but you realised fairly quickly there was something wrong.
1: Well, even being stopped, well, it was the morning of the uh, the morning of the 31st of July, uh, um, the, thir- uh, the uh, Thursday morning on our way home. It must have been about 2 o'clock, half past 2. Uh, we had just left Banbridge, the Castle Ballroom in Banbridge. <laughs> but when we were stopped, there wasn't any sense of foreboding. There wasn't any... Uh, we weren't worried about that because, as you say, the troubles were raging in the north, but bands always felt immune from that. There was, there was never any sense of threat to bands. Uh, and, in fact, the, we were stopped by men in UDR uniforms. The UDR was the Ulster Defence Regiment, and that's the that was, at the time, uh, the largest regiment in the British Army, mostly made up of... Uh, locals, some of them, uh, most of them, part-time uh, soldiers. So we didn't, uh, we didn't see any danger in being stopped. The unusual thing was that uh, the man that <coughs> stopped us, uh, he asked us to get out of the, our minibus. We didn't travel with the gear that had gone ahead with the road manager. The, uh, normally they would recognise recognise us and and say, you know, that's fine, off you go, but this particular night we were asked to get out of the minibus and stand at the side of the road with our hands on our heads that was unusual
0: and also when you were out of th- when you were out of the van as i understand it their plan appeared to have been that they were going to put a bomb in the van and send you back to dublin in the intent being that at some stage either down the road or when you got to dublin this went off
1: yeah <coughs> there were secretly while they were talking to us and, uh, in fact they were quite seemed to be like in good humour. They were joking with us and, and uh, everything seemed very casual. <coughs> what we didn't see was that there were two of their people uh, planting a £10 uh, commercial explosives, which would have been lethal, under the driver's seat of, uh, of our minibus. And we wouldn't have known anything about that. They would have said, thanks very much for your cooperation, off you go. And as you say, according to the forensic reports afterwards, it was about a 10-minute uh, timer on this thing, and uh, it would have exploded killing all of us on board and uh, nobody would have known about the roadblock and we would have been labelled for all time as carrying bombs for the IRA or whoever um, and we would have gone down in history, the Miami show band would have gone down in history as terrorists. Right,
0: right. So then... And that was the
1: plan and, and the reason for that was that they, w- they weren't happy with the uh, the... Uh, the uh, security um, structures inside the, the republic that would be south of the border because they felt they were too lax and they were trying to get the uh, the Irish government to have a, a stringent stop-and-search uh, policy because they felt that if the IRA committed some atrocity that once they got over the border they were fairly safe, home and dry. And the Irish government, especially the Irish TDs, which would be the members of the Irish Parliament, in the constituencies around the border area, they were reluctant to have a stringent stop-and-search policy because a lot of their constituents um, would have crossed the border maybe a couple of times a day, whether it was for uh, cheaper cigarettes or groceries or cheaper petrol or whatever. It was a way of life. And um, so in order to force the Irish government to do that, they want, their plan was to to um, frame the most trusted uh, and even loved uh, commuters, regular commuters, as terrorists. So then the international community would would say, well, you can't trust anybody if these guys, who everybody thought were completely innocent, are carrying carrying bombs, and that would have been a fait accompli for them. But on, uh, fortunately for us, I suppose in a way, and uh, unfortunately for them, uh, it didn't work. The, the, the plan didn't work. The bomb went off, killing the two unfortunate men that were planting the bomb uh, in the in the van. <coughs> exploded prematurely, and uh, blew those two men to pieces. And uh, when that happened, the van. If anybody sees the the pictures uh, of of the van on on the website or on you can you know, there's lots of pictures on the web of the Miami Showband massacre, and you see it, it. The van was disintegrated and. Um, blew us into the field, which was about three meters down uh, in front of us, um, and uh, they started to slaughter everybody. <coughs> and while we were while we were talking to them before the, uh, the before the bomb went off, <coughs> uh, there was a, a man appeared on the scene with a, a very English, posh English accent. He, for all the world to me, he was a, a British officer. Uh, a British Army officer, and he spoke in a, a distinct, posh English accent. And uh, he took charge of the operation. Um, but as I say, the, when, when this thing went off, uh, all hell broke loose. Um,
0: and, of course, it was important not to leave any witnesses.
1: Yeah, the, the uh, soldiers <coughs> jumped down into the field after us. And uh, our one of our lads, our, uh, a sax player, saxophone player, was blown to the right, so he was uh, blown in a different direction. We were only standing a few, a couple of meters from the van when it went off, and he he was uh, out of sight. And um, I was uh, I was blown while while I was in the air, it blew me up into the air. I was shot in the in the right hip by what they call a dum-dum bullet, which is it's an explosive bullet, and it exploded inside me. Traveled uh, into sixteen pieces. It traveled up, then the rest of it up through my left lung and out under my left arm. So I was very badly injured. The other lads uh, fell on top of me, and they tried to pick me up and drag me out, but a few away from all of this consternation, and uh, unfortunately, um, they were caught very quickly by the soldiers and murdered. Right.
0: So, <clears throat> Stephen, um, out of an incident like this, and. Uh, f- what I want to do is to encourage people to to watch the documentary um, yeah. so it 's inevitable that you would have suffered post traumatic stress from something like this yeah how did you yeah. how and you may not even be fully aware of some of that, but how did that the post traumatic stress resulting from that what was the impact then
1: well it's i suppose uh, it would surprise your listeners, especially the younger ones, to know that after an incident like that, and we were only—you know—this um, was only one in- uh, incident that happened in the north. There was terrible things done on both sides. In our case, it was committed by loyalist paramilitaries in collusion with with uh, British security forces, because some of the members, some of the people that were uh, involved in our incident, were members of of uh, the UDR <coughs> and. Um, of course, there are other terrible atrocities that that, that happened uh, across the province over the years, committed by um, by the IRA. So you know, it was one was as bad as the other when it came to this type of thing. But none, I would say, safely say that I, none of the victims who were impacted by these events ever got uh, any kind of counselling. There was, you know, uh, there was no such thing as you know. You were basically told, you know, get well and get on with it. Uh, but uh, I had been, um, I, I had been assessed by a psychiatrist, but it was for maybe the following year. It was for a small claims thing, and uh, uh, and it was years and years afterwards. Only about maybe six, seven years ago that I was assessed because of our new court court action against the chief Counsel of the PSNI and the British Ministry of Defence for complicity in the incident. That I was diagnosed with a thing called enduring personality change, which meant that <coughs> I entered this event as one person and uh, came out of it as another person.
0: And that is not something temporary. In effect, that when people would say that that was a life-changing experience, insofar as you as a person changed permanently
1: permanently it's uh, um, I had never heard of enduring personality change I had expected the diagnosis to be as you say um, post traumatic stress disorder which obviously had as well but um, uh, this enduring personality change was explained to me it gave me an example where say somebody is put into a concentration camp and if they live through it and they're released they are no longer a dentist or the doctor or whatever they were or the, uh, that they that they had been before they went into it, They're completely. Every single aspect of their thinking, and their personality has changed. <clears throat> and um, so I, I thought, well, maybe it, you know, this should have taken a while, but they said, no, it can happen uh, just in one one event. It can happen at night that you're completely changed uh, by trauma. So yeah, it is absolutely, it is life changing.
0: So, while it wasn't overnight on one side, you left home, and when you came back home, you were a different person that your wife had to come to grips with.
1: Yeah, um, I, I remember when I was diagnosed with this thing, I asked her, I said, you know, did I change, and she said, as, as you would see on the documentary, uh, it's, she said it was like learning to live with another person and, you know, by default learning to love another person. And thankfully she did. Um, so it, it had an enormous effect on our lives. Yeah, But again, you know, it's just not just me. You can imagine my wife was a, a beautiful, happy, uh, young 21-year-old at the time. And we were living the life and it had a terrible effect on her as well.
0: Uh, and in the long term then, like, had you any kids at that stage?
1: No, uh, our daughter wasn't born until uh, 1992, so it was a long time, you know, I suppose some people might suggest that, you know, we were reluctant to, um, you know, to, to bring somebody into the world that, you know, after when we had this kind of view of the world, this uh, jaundiced view of the world, and I suppose it's not hard to pl- understand why we had, you know, but yeah, I'm, I'm really glad. I mean, we, she's, our daughter is the love of our lives. You
0: know. Right. You left uh, and went to to England to try to um, change your environment, change your world, um, but it didn't solve the problem in the long term.
1: No, it didn't. Um, you know, we the first suggestion, even while I was still in hospital recovering from the from from the injuries. um you know this talk of putting the band back together with replacing the lads. Well, I don't even like using the the word replacing. You know, you couldn't replace them. But you know, to put a new band together and get new people in. And actually, while I was in hospital, I thought this was a good idea uh, because we got our lives back. And because, as I said, we were living a great life. And uh, you know, you were stars, and every who doesn't want to be, you know, have all of this thing happening for them. And uh, we we did. We put the band back together, and of course. That didn't solve the problem. I would look across the stage and, and say, "This isn't the band that you know that I joined. This isn't the band that had taken taken years to 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 uh, put together uh, with personnel changes and that type of thing." It, uh, it, this was one of the first real manufactured bands. It's a very very good. I mean, it was fabulous. We could still draw two and a half thousand people on an, on a, just on a regular Monday night in the TV club in Dublin, but it wasn't. It wasn't what I wanted, so you're right. Yeah, I tried a, a few different things. I even tried going back home to Carrick and and South and tried to restart my life, but uh, none of that worked. So we decided we eventually, in 1982, we decided to go and try to become sort of anonymous in England, and you know, all I wanted to do was play, play music.
0: But that wasn't enough either, because there were too many unanswered questions.
1: Yeah, well, I think the the, the impetus for us coming to come back home, we were happy in, in living in London, really, with a nice house, a lovely area, and all that. But when our daughter was born, we wanted her, you know, maybe to grow up with her cousins and her family, and so came back and we actually lived in lived in Cork, where we still live in Cork now. Um, we had lived for a while in, in, in Dublin, as I say, in Port Marnock. But when we came back to Ireland, uh, when she became to school age, um, we um, were happy to come come back here. And at that time, there was there was questions being raised um, by the authorities with regard to uh, collusion, and there was the Barron Tribunal, Judge Baron Henry Baron tri- Tribunal was going on looking into collusion. And so I decided to. Um, you know, I'd give evidence at that. I didn't think my evidence would be important, but as I began to give the evidence and I looking at looking at the evidence that was there and existed, I knew that there was something very wrong with our case. That it wasn't just some bunch of thugs that had done this, or some rogue um, um, security people. I knew I, I began to see collusion then, and uh, I had to admit. Know, what I didn't want to admit that there was collusion between the security forces and uh, Loyalist paramilitary groups.
0: From that point, when you decided that you wanted to do something, did you come under pressure at any stage from any direction to push back?
1: Not really. Um, you know, there even I could say that there wasn't really an appetite uh, from, especially mainstream media, to uh, you know, to to verify that there was any collusion but the more i got into it uh, the more i knew that that it was uh, the pressure came from myself that i felt that you know i really have to get to the bottom of this but i'd say it's only in the last handful of years that mainstream media actually accepts that there was collusion now you know they're the ones that fought against it now it's uh, it's recognized and it's it's um it's accepted by mainstream media and this is one of the wonderful things you know Mainstream media in Ireland, definitely, but not in the UK. And when we brought our book out, when Neil and I wrote the book, Neil Furlongston Hall and I decided to write the book in, in 2007, 2006, 2007. It was was uh, published. Um, we couldn't get it distributed in in the UK, so we sort of realised that there was again there was some sort of let's a, a, call it censorship or, or uh, they, they didn't want this story to come out, uh, even though we were with one of the biggest publishing companies in the world at the time. Uh, we couldn't, we couldn't, uh, couldn't get it distributed. So um, we we eventually uh, went with a, a small publishing company uh, after we got our rights back. Uh, and you can you can get the book on. it. I think it's called uh, mybooksource.com. Uh, but. It, which you can also download it from from, uh, from Amazon. It's called uh, The Miami Showband Massacre: A Survivor's Search for the Truth. And uh, but as Luke would have it, all of a sudden, you know, there's we people who are doing this series of films uh, for for Netflix on music and where music influences society and. Um, they decided to make eight films. And one was the first one was was, uh, who shot the sheriff. It was about Bob Marley's attempted assassination. And and there was Johnny Cash, the man in black and, and uh, others, Sam Cooke and Victor Hara and people like that. It was an excellent series. And they, uh, they got hold of my book and uh, they approached me. And next thing I knew that they, they flew over from Hollywood and we were making a, this monumental, um, a Netflix documentary called uh, Remastered. That was the name of the series. Remastered the Miami Chauvin
0: Massacre.
1: Mm. it's marvellous. I mean, we just, you know, we're no longer you know, unknown. This is a, a terrible thing that happened, and the world now knows about it. It's, we've got massive reaction from all over the world. From you know, we still get you know, messages and uh, Twitter mentions all the time from everywhere, from Tokyo to Alaska.
0: So, Stephen, something like this then, in an ironic way, does it cause a wound to be opened wide, or does it put even a start of a closure process in place?
1: Unfortunately, um, you know, it's a word that's that's uh, you know used a lot when it comes to victims of closure. There is no closure, yeah. so I can't say the wound was reopened. The wound never closes. And what what I when I came to terms with this because I had been on the the talk circuit around the um, for um, uh, radicalisation awareness uh, network and which was was funded by the EU and I uh, decided you know that if we can turn this experience into something good uh, then that's that's the best we can uh, we can expect and it is a very gratifying satisfying thing to do to be able to turn it into something good so we we um, founded an organization um, with other victims called uh, truth and reconciliation platform and that's tarp so you can see more about that on tarp.ie, T-A-R-P, tarp.ie Um and that's about bringing people together from who are impacted from both sides of the communities and the traditions and in the north so we get people through uh um, to stand up on you know on, on, on the platform and just to s- tell their experiences so, so that we can you know discourage or dissuade people uh, to use violence as a political expedient or as some way to change change society and we don't tell them uh, you know that they should or they shouldn't use violence. what we tell them is if they do go down that route that our experiences will be, will become theirs. So it's uh, we're trying to as I say, Make sure that people don't use violence.
0: I think the other um, challenge in many ways is that what you discovered was that that sense of security that many of us have, that in our societies and that being Western societies, that government is there taking care of us and that that belief in many ways for you was shattered
1: yeah it's um not just a sense of security it's a sense it's it's a complacency that we you know we take for granted until something like that happens until there is some kind of an outrage and i mean you've seen it in your own country you've seen it uh you've seen it uh all over the world where the terrorist events happen almost on a regular basis now uh and it's only uh, it's only when something like that happens that you try to put something in place where you fight for uh um Uh, some sort of system to to be more vigilant. But uh, I think, yeah, we we need to, we we must put the complacency away and we must make sure that these things don't happen. I think the best way to do that is through education because people can be radicalized um, online in their own, you know, there's young kids sitting in their bedrooms watching uh, or taking in all the propaganda I think education, uh, and we should be able to preempt these things. And that's what we try to do with, with TARP. It is a complacency, and uh, as Edmund Burke once said, you know, for evil to prevail, all uh, all that is necessary is that good men do nothing.
0: True, but where I'm coming from here is that in your research and in in your quest, you have um, information that leads fairly high within the government. And when I say that government is there, we have this sense of security that government is there to protect us and look look after us. We as ordinary citizens, we not as radicalised rebels or, or criminals, but we as ordinary people, government is there to protect us. But you actually discovered government were complicit in not doing so.
1: Yes, uh, the, the 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 British government obviously uh, had a policy. Uh, I believe they had a policy at that time to uh, to use and to work with uh, um, uh, one of the two warring factions. I'm talking about they say the uh, the paramilitaries, uh, loyalist paramilitaries, and uh, as opposed to republican paramilitaries, which would have been the IRA. And in our case, it was the UVF, the Ulster Volunteer Force. And they used them as proxy, as a proxy army, to defeat, um, to try to defeat the IRA. And they did so by uh, um, engaging and obviously working with terrorists. And they wanted to, um, they wanted to uh, use them not just not just in, in a sort of a combat situation, but it was a, what they call a black ops. So that, uh, for instance, they didn't want the Ordinary people, the society, the communities, to support the, um, um, the the IRA. So they would they would frame people and cause uh, uh, they would they would frame um, uh, people like us uh, as as terrorists. They would they would get the uh, other uh, the loyalist paramilitaries to to work with them. They would arm them and and uh, and um, Direct them, and uh, as they did, uh, as they did in, in, in our, our system. Basically, they were using terrorists to fight terrorists. And whereas, as it says in the documentary, as the, the two British officers who you'll see in the documentary said, yeah, they probably thought that they were doing the right thing to uh, to sacrifice uh, a few people to make things better for in general. But it was murder. You know, you mm-hmm. had the British security forces engaged in murder. And And, uh, it's it's quite clear. We have all of the evidence of that now. We just can't wait to get into court with it.
0: And where I'm coming from in many ways, as I said, we have this sense of security. But a lot of times, we as the ordinary man on the street really have no idea what's going on or we have no idea what might be at play in a variety of circumstances. And if we bring it up to the modern day, up to this day and age, where we hear so much talk of... um, International interference in democracies of by one country on another, etc., and radicalisation, and all the different threats in many ways that there are toward the, the world as we know it. Um, it's frightening that what you've done and what you have exposed, in a way, is showing some of the underbelly of what should be the establishment.
1: The establishment... Uh again in our case in, uh, that Britain was murdering its own citizens uh, and thinking that this is in some way enhancing the security of the state uh, Brian McCoy and uh, was uh, our trumpet player was murdered on that now, he was a, a Protestant lad from from Northern Ireland, from Caledon County Tyrone um, Des, uh, Des Lee our sex player, he was a Catholic from the north from Belfast and um, uh, Fran O'Toole and, and, and Tony Gertie were well, Fran was from Bray in County Wicklow, and Tony was from Dublin, I'm obviously from Tipperary. So he was they were murdering not only their own citizens, but the citizens of uh, their closest neighbour, a friendly, friendly state. And as far as their warped way of thinking was, well, we'll do this for the greater good. But, I mean, you can't murder your own citizens or the citizens of a friendly country, neighbouring country, for the good of society, this was the warped way of thinking. And so, what we're what we're doing now, because we've taken this case, uh, this civil action against them, uh, is we want we we don't want anybody else to go to jail. There were people, unfortunate people, three people uh, um, jailed for this for the longest prison sentences uh, given out during the troubles. And um, we don't want this to happen again. But at the same time. We want an acknowledgement from from the British uh, authorities that they were involved in this and that uh, that we want um, them to state that this was their uh, modus operandi, this was their policy back then in 1975, and that it is no longer uh, their policy. That's that's what we want to do. We're effectively taking the state, we're taking the system to task on this.
0: In taking the system to task and in, in the lessons that you hope you can help teach um you're very very active now in trying to help educate increase awareness and I know when we chatted previously um you mentioned that you're opening an office in uh, Lisburn at the moment
1: um,
0: in, in, in nuri in and yeah. what what is that for
1: well it it's just gives us a, a, a base in, in the north. I, well, Eugene Reevy, who's the, uh, the other, my co-founder of TARP, um, he, he lives in uh, just outside Nury in White Cross. His three brothers, by the way, were murdered uh, by the same gang. They were called the Glen Ann Gang, which was made up of security forces and, uh, and elements of the, uh, the uh, Ulster Volunteer Force, the UVF. And his three brothers were murdered on the the night of, uh, I think it was the 4th of January 1976, and Eugene is a very, very good man, so he's, uh, because he lives up there, and a lot of our work, or reconciliation, or truth truth and reconciliation work, um, goes on in the north, as you can imagine, there are more people uh, uh, impacted upon up there, and I live in Cork, so it's a long way up, so we needed a base up there as well, I've got an office here in Cork, but we uh and Eugene was working from from his place, but we decided to open an office up there so that people can come and visit us, talk about their problems, and that we can perhaps try to uh um try to help in any way we can and we do a lot of we have a schools project where we it is- c- uh counter radicalization where we talk to young people and we warn them against the, you know we well we tell them consequences of, of allowing themselves to be radicalised and to be drawn into uh, uh, these type of organisations and there is a threat there, people might say this is in the past but with Brexit happening it's an opportunity for uh, for some people who believe that there is still some sort of a victory out there to be got, they believe that this is possible, uh, so they're radicalising and uh, both sides are again, whether people realise it or not, they're actually recruiting as you saw a terrible uh, incident there recently on Good Friday, I think it was when Lyra McKee was murdered, uh, a young a young journalist, 29-year-old, um, by these people who still believe that they've got this idea that somehow or other they can bomb and kill their way to United Ireland. Well, so we warned the uh, we cautioned the young people that this is what you're drawing yourselves into, and it's it's very effective.
0: When, when you say that um, Brexit uh, represents a, a challenge that is it such that uh, the environment within the north of Ireland particularly is such that uh, there is an element who would use Brexit particularly if there was a reimposition of a border as a, a reason to start a violent campaign again?
1: There was always an element there, on uh, not just on the Republican side, but on the uh, on on the uh, loyalist side, but and in particular on the British Army side, who would, we would refer to as hawks, who believed that the that the the war that was there was uh, was stopped too quickly, and that both of them believed that there was a victory to be had from it. But there's no victory. Uh, there, there was never a victory possible for anybody, uh, anybody there, but. To put up a border, uh, um, again, you know, we've had 20 years of, of, of cessation of violence, whether or not you like to call it a peace or not, but we were getting towards a great tolerance uh, and, and learning to live with each other, although there is still a lot of uh, um, tension there. But a border would be a physical uh, um, sign of the partition of the country and that, you know, a hardening of. of, of uh, th- this this uh, segregation would be a real a real problem, and people would say, "Well, we told you so. Peace doesn't work." Uh, we've gone back to uh, uh, they've they've asserted their their power over us up here, and uh, once again the nationalist community would have been left stranded, and um, so yeah, they would use that as an excuse to sh- start killing because the first time you'd see. Uh, even uh, a camera, a security ca- camera, going up on on what was an invisible border, but because of Brexit, will have to be implemented. Mm-hmm. So that they would shoot the camera down, and then somebody would come along to guard the camera. They would shoot this person. They would take pot shots at at what will have to be, uh, um, say, uh, customs checks, and then the army would be brought back in. Uh, I heard Eamon McCann, who was one of the organisers of the uh, of the the civil rights marches back in 19, uh, when at the Bloody Sunday, at the time of Bloody Sunday, and he said just a few weeks ago, he said we now stand in the same position as we did back 1969, where at that time he said when we were marching for civil rights and all of the other things, he said we had no idea what was going to happen for the next 40 years. And he said, here we are back there again. We don't know what's going to happen uh, if, the, if the killing starts again and if the police are being fired on or the uh, border posts are being fired on, they're going to bring back the army. And there are idiots in the British government. You can't call them anything else. I mean, un, uh, uninformed idiots like, like Reese Mogg, Jacob Reese Mogg, and Boris Johnson and people like that who couldn't even tell you where the border was. And they will say to you, and they said in Parliament, they said, you know, a border is no problem. We can just monitor it the way we did during the Troubles. I mean, you know, that is abject ignorance mm-hmm. because all it does is, is gives the uh, – restarts the whole thing off again and lives will be lost and people will have – experiences that we had, that I had, and the people in Bloody Sunday or Bloody Friday, and Man, and skilling and Clady and Dublin Man, and all of this will kick off again.
0: And uh, Stephen, when we talked before um, as well, you'd mentioned that people had said to you that, in the light of things that have happened over the last ten years, that maybe the original work you had done on the book should maybe be brought up to date. But you've indicated to me that, really. That isn't the case that might what might be more appropriate is it's time for pen to go to paper again with a part two as distinct from an edited part one
1: yeah a sequel yeah. Um, so much has come to life and yes the uh, the first book um, is you know it's is pretty complete I've just I read it again recently and maybe there are one or two things that I need to bring up to date but <clears throat> I don't think. You know, a rewrite of that book would be would, would be the right thing to do. I think that, I do think that there's that there's a sequel uh, because so much has happened. Um, uh, you know, we've had we've I've, I've, I've had there's a lot of information has come to light, but along with that there's we've had a lot of adventures. The making of the documentary itself over two years was you know shed light on things, and that in itself you could take, you could write a book about it. You know, so uh, life has been interesting. It's not dangerous.
0: <laughs> and I'm thinking back to when you sat across in front of the Irish uh, Pensions Trust, and you were <laughs> you were asked um, what your your goals and your ambitions were. Um, you could never have foreseen anything of where you are today.
1: No, my uh, my mother wanted me, <coughs> excuse me, to get a you know white collar job and uh, be a, a Join the Irish Pensions Trust I hope they don't sue me for saying that but yeah, I had no interest in that I wanted to uh, I was young I was uh, when I did my leaving search which would be the end of high school for us uh, I was 17 at the time I was I suppose, reasonably young and uh, even at that I was 17 as my father would have said 17 going on 7 I hadn't the slightest care in the world I thought you know, I could still go over and join the Beatles uh, so no I didn't want that type of job and uh, uh, I ended up joining the the, the, biggest, the biggest band in, in in Ireland at the time, but even at that, wouldn't have stopped my ambitions. I I, I wanted to uh, to develop it and to to do great things. And you're full of th- those type of beans when you're that age, and uh, everything changed on on uh, on that day on the thirty first morning of the 31st of July, 1975. So it wasn't just an enduring personality change for me. It was. An enduring change for all of Ireland. Some people often refer to that day as not just the day of the music died, but certainly the, the end of innocence for us, for many young people.
0: Do you have recurring nightmares at any stage?
1: No, I, I don't. And people talk about flashbacks and things like that. My experience, uh, which you would imagine would enter into the realm of nightmare, my experience is always in front of me, it is part of my life it never ever goes away so I don't need a flashback to, you know, when I'm talking to you about it or when I was explaining earlier the the, the scene that took place and the site of the road and the junction of Buskill Road there um, I could see all of that there
0: And I know you've been back there because in the, in the documentary you've, you've been back at that Point on the road, um, that must cause a huge well within inside you of emotion.
1: It's a strange thing. It's a strange thing, Austin. But what it, what it does is, uh, it causes an emotion that I can't articulate. Sometimes it is uh, a great comfort, and uh, I would pull pull the. the the land crews are in there uh, sometimes and just lie back in it beside the beside the tree where it happened. Just sort of, sort of close my eyes and think, you know, this is where it all ended and all began. And it's almost like going back to some kind of a a, a, a cradle. And then, you know, you feel whether sometimes, usually it's, it's a feeling of renewal that, you know, that I must go and try and sort something out about this and not quite sure what it is that you're going to sort out but maybe uh, try to make sure it doesn't happen to somebody else Yeah, but it, it, it is quite, a, I wouldn't say emotional but it's quite a, um, an intense moment that you're not quite sure where you are
0: You mentioned that Anne had to get to know a whole new p- uh, person um, after How did your parents go
1: up? My father had died in seventy three, so he wasn't there. My mother, <coughs> um, my mother was had been had been through uh, you know through uh, the Second World War, and she was in France when that happened, and she was there during the occupation when when the Germans came in to France. So she wasn't a stranger to that type of you know to atrocities. So maybe you know somehow or other that that she was able to deal with it perhaps more than most people would but obviously she was distraught uh, but uh, the effect on on, on on my wife Anne was uh, it was terrible you know this was a, a a beautiful young girl full of full of life and all of a sudden then she became suspicious of the world and you know uh, you're everything, everything changes, not just, you know, it's not just uh, um, that you're trying to get get well, you do, you get physically well, but the attitude of people towards you, I, one of my favourite songs is uh, a song by the Eagles called New Kid in Town, and there's a line in it that says, even your old friends treat you like you're something new, and uh, and that's true, you know, all of a sudden... People don't know uh, how to deal with you. Some people will avoid you. Some people, you know, we went back on the road and we thought we were going to be just the same big stars as we were, but people more, they they were looking at us more than than listening to us. And that's why, after about six weeks of this massive crowds, I decided I just want to get out of this. And I couldn't find my uh, center of gravity. Uh, for years and years afterwards. I I was in total denial that there was any collusion for the best part of 30 years and then I had to accept it and that's what I'm trying to deal with now.
0: And then would you, so when you say you you couldn't find your centre of gravity what is the centre of gravity?
1: Your centre of gravity is uh, is where you feel that you can be most useful to society and perhaps most useful to yourself because Becoming a victim of an event like that, and again, I saw myself as a survivor for 30 years, and I wouldn't admit that I was a victim. Uh, that was uh, uh, something that happened. Uh, there was uh, I had a, a road to Damascus. I actually had to accept it a, a, on an occasion where I was giving a talk in, in Warrington in um, in the UK, in the, uh, the Peace Centre, and I thought everything was going fine, and... I went to talk and I couldn't talk. My voice went, everything went, and the wall fell on me and it uh, took me two years to sort myself out. But the finding one of the things that, that happens when you become a victim is that your sense of worth, that your sense of self-value, self-worth is taken from you. In our case, we were top of our game as musicians. And immediately after that, even when we reformed the band that put the new band together... <coughs> People didn't see us as entertainers anymore. We didn't realize this, but they were, you know, they saw us as as something different that even was unprecedented. So uh, I was no longer worth, um, you know, what I I thought I was worth with regard to being a, a talented young musician. And being a part of Truth and Reconciliation Platform, where you hold up these events and tell your audience that, nobody has a monopoly on suffering or loss and you see that it's actually doing some good that gives you back your sense of worth and uh, that's as good as uh, a center of gravity or falcon that I am, I'm going to get You know, if I can be successful with that and, and uh, even save one more life uh, by convincing people that violence is, uh, is not the way to go or change society or whatever then I feel that that's uh, that's my role in life now. Apart from trying to be a good father and husband too.
0: Stephen, we're going to wrap up. It's been an honour and fantastic to be able to have a chat with you. It's been wonderful, and um, I'm very grateful for your time. And as I, I found that documentary to be moving and uh, informative, and very much, um, uh, it captured what. Uh, even though I was around at the time in Dublin in 1975 um, what had faded into I won't say the past but it's important to understand the context and the documentary certainly brought the context to life and I can only hope that you can bring the context to conclusion
1: I hope so it's my privilege to talk to you Austin and and to your listeners in Canada
0: We've been chatting with Stephen Travers, who was uh, part of the Miami show band that were stopped on the 31st of July, 1975, and uh, they were left for dead on the side of the road. And Stephen, fortunately, uh, while the others, uh, three of them were killed two survived, and Stephen was one. Thank you indeed, Stephen.
1: Thank you.